I'm excited to be here. The toughest part of my job is pronouncing my last name. So people, um, people have a little bit of trouble with that. Uh, I work for Ally Financial. I'm the Chief Information Data and Digital Officer. It's a unique role in the tech industry because it has product experience, technology, digital data, network, and security all reporting into me, and it gives us the end-to-end -end accountability and responsibility to do what is right for our customers. Ally, as you may or may not know, is the largest digital bank in the nation, um, and also a leading auto lender. We have about 11.5 million customers that rely on 11,500 employees to provide them the best digital experience there is to serve their financial needs. And all of us operate in a very simple mantra called do it right for our customers so we can help them achieve their financial goals quickly, efficiently, and as fast as they can. So with that notion is how we use quantum and AI at Ally. Um, the the age-old question of is it, is it a solution looking for a problem or is it really solving a business problem is all the more critical now that quantum is going through its um, hype curve, if you will, you know, from the initial excitement to disillusionment to identifying practical use cases has been a challenge for many companies. I'll, I'll, I'll sort of give you a background view of what we have done, um, <clears throat> and it's, it's um, very inspiring as well as providing a lot of hope. So if you think about indices in the stock market, you have to have thousands of assets um, that make up their indices, whether it's an ETF fund, ETF fund. Sometimes it's hundreds of thousands of assets that produce a certain return on investment over a period of time. So for traditional models to predict what assets should be part of the indices is very constrained. And um, this notion of cardinality constraint sets in, and it's very difficult to identify the assets. So we used quantum and healing, and if you know quantum, it is super impressive in identifying what type of assets have to be part of the indices. So instead of having hundreds of thousands, we just have a few assets in different industries that provide the same return on investment over a period of time. And think about what that does to our customers. It reduces the fees they pay in participating in the indices, for the managers, it's reduced operating cost, and you're also eliminating risk, portion of the risk at least, a little bit, and have greater certainty over the, the, uh, the returns on these assets. You know, a lot of the times when we're talking with banks, they're traditional banks, and we're talking about you know, becoming digital, um, you know, digital native companies from where they were, but you guys have always been digital, your DNA is digital. How does that impact in terms of you know, how you think of prioritization when it comes to projects and value? You know, is, is it you know, a lot different from, say, a traditional bank in, in how you might think of it? And is there kind of a, a misnomer that you're digital first so you can handle more things or you're more savvy? You know, how do you think when, when looking at projects, how do you think about prioritization and value? Uh, it's a great question. Um, the common understanding or notion might be, if you are a digital-first organization, it's easier to show value, it's easier to prioritize projects, it's easier for you to move fast. Um, I would tell you 
coming from the inside, it's exactly the opposite. If you're part of a traditional bank, you walk around or you can't throw a stone without finding what is the, the low-hanging fruit. You can quickly add value, you can quickly showcase um, the impact that you're having and start to generate momentum if you're focused on the bigger goal. For us, it's extremely difficult. And that's why prioritization becomes extremely critical and we have to dig deep to find value. And our mantra says do it right and we start from customer first as opposed to technology first. Once you have identified the problems that you're trying to solve, solve for the customers and you fall in love with that, then bringing technology to solve that problem becomes that much more easier. And what it does is it forces us, and I talked about the broader responsibility that my organization has. It, it's easier to have a conversation with our business leaders about the problem that you're trying to solve and create this support around investments as well as prioritization because everybody is focused on what is best for our customers. Uh, if you have questions, we'll flash the, uh, the QR code up there um, as we go through the, the conversation here. You know, obviously, when, when thinking about these decisions, you, know, you can't just, all right, we're starting a project. You need buy-in, not only from you know, the current stakeholders, but you need to provide um, you know, potential um, you know, evidence of, of value that might come out of that. You know, how do you ultimately get buy-in from some of the stakeholders and, and get the product from idea stage into production stage and ultimately to your end customers? Yeah. <clears throat> I often feel that that is the most important part that defines the success of an initiative or a project. You know, expectation from a technology leader on paper is to be the technology trailblazer. Like, you are going to come in and drive change. That's critical and important. But what is even more critical and important is to understand the business needs, understand the customer requirements, and make sure that you're also a trailblazer on the customer side, on the business side. So you, it, both of those are equally important. We have adapted um, a simple notion that we often, often um, throw around, and it is wearing your ally hat first. You have to wear your ally hat first before you wear your business or function hat or your team hat or your individual hat. And it just immediately clicks that now we are all going towards a common goal, mm -hmm. um, a, a common endpoint, and you're focused on solving the right problem, which makes it easy for us to prioritize, yeah. as well as focus on what is right for our customers. So we've had a couple of questions come in already from the audience. Um, you know, what have been the main use cases or main uses for quantum computing besides forming optimized portfolios? that you found that have added most value for customers? And also we had someone ask, what is quantum computing? So maybe just give a quick synopsis when answering that question, what we're talking about when we say quantum computing. Okay, yes. Th thank you for that question. Let me start with what quantum computing is. When you think about a normal computer, it takes your data, processes, derives information, and gives you a result. The computer exists in only one state. So it, it either is on or off. That, that's how you, you think about a normal computer processing. Whereas in quantum, quantum exists in two states. And what I mean by that in English is it exponentially gives you power to 
process large volume of data and then think about doing things in parallel. It's essentially having a seven-lane um, seven highway as opposed to two-lane highway that gets jammed in, in um, during, uh, during peak traffic. <clears throat> so the way we have thought about quantum is, and first of all, we are a regulated institution. We have to answer the regulators before we answer the customers. And we have to have this idea of explainability in terms of treating a customer a certain way, especially in the digital environment. Why did you treat this customer this way as opposed to treating a customer differently? Using a quantum computing model would make it difficult for us to do that. So we are very carefully treading on use cases. And one of the use cases I showed you is actually a performance of an asset that's different from treating a customer with an experience. While we have several use cases that we have lined up, we need to make sure that we are in the ready and prepared when quantum explodes um, in mainstream. So that, that has been our approach right now. See around the corners, identify certain use cases, test in our lab, and be ready when quantum becomes mainstream, which it is not yet. Obviously, you know, data plays a key role in all of what we're talking about. When it comes to data, how important is it to ensure that the data is, you know, the correct data, the right data, the organized in the right way? I mean, incorrect data is, you know, the tool's never going to work as efficiently as a a, um, a maybe a tool that isn't as good but has great data. How do you you know kind of work with the two, the technology and the data? Yeah, um, it's a it's a fantastic question. Often forgotten or seen behind the scenes is the role of data, and the role of organizing the data so you can leverage maximum value from it. Whether you're talking about AI or about quantum computing. Data is the first essential step. And I'll tell you how we had thought about organizing it. So we have four work streams that are actively happening to create this data culture that'll set us up to adopt quantum and also leverage AI. The first one we call is, uh, is data engineering. And all the, the entire focus of the data engineering team is to collect data, cleanse it, store it, make it easily findable, make it easily accessible, and allow others, whether it is an application, computer application, or a data analyst, to use it. So that's the first vertical work that is happening. The second is all about data governance. That includes who's using it, are they using it for the right permissible purpose? Is, it, are, is data leakage happening? And are you, are you maintaining the integrity of the data? That is the second um, piece of it, data governance. That's another vertical. The third vertical is what we call a data enablement group. You can build all the tools, you can bring all the technology, you can bring all the data together, but if people are not using it, you're not gonna find the maximum value for it. So the sole purpose of this organization and, and the purpose of their work is to ensure that people understand the tools and people are using the new set of data, new set of tools, and show them the incremental value add from what they're doing today. So that is the third piece of it. And the last one is called data stewards. 
data stewards sit within the business, sit within the functions, as well as within technology. And their sole purpose is to identify use cases or products where this data will be leveraged. So they live and breathe customer problems day in and day out. Those are the guys identifying data products that will work with the data engineering team to ensure that they have the right set of data is governed correctly, and, and the data enablement team is the bridge between the end user of the data as well as the people that are engineering the data. We had an interesting question come in from our audience, which is, what are examples of bad applications of AI in a bank, or to rephrase, what's on the don't do it list? Um, you know, regarding AI. I mean, there, is there some obvious things that you know, the bank would steer clear of when it comes to AI because the value prop from it, it just doesn't make sense for the customers that you serve? Yeah, first of all, at Ally Bank, there is no bad technology application. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm half joking. Um, you know, the, the, the beauty of being regulated, um, it, it gives you optionality of a mindset. You can think of them as super cops constantly looking over your shoulders to make sure that you're doing the right thing. Or you could think of them as voice of the customers constantly pushing you to do better. So I talked about the, the explainability portion. It's very easy to take these models and apply it and go gangbusters about the experience you create for your customers. But when the question arrives around, why did you approve credit card for this customer, but you denied it for the same customer who lives in the same zip code but has the same spending habits? Or why did you deny the auto loan for this customer as opposed to another customer where you approved it? So that would be a bad application of not understanding how AI works, which, which it, it, could, it could be very pre precise in terms of identifying how do you underwrite these loans. But what we think about as a company is, you need to be there for our customers. I, I, I truly haven't worked for a company where the culture comes to life on a daily basis with customer at its center. The, the conversation that we are having during this banking crisis is, how can you be available for your customers when they need you most, as opposed to pulling back on the lending? Um, and, and that is where Ally differentiates itself and when we are doing it, we have to be responsible for our shareholder money. So I'm telling this story to tell you, it's easy to use traditional models to arrive at an answer for a customer. But the way we are using it is, we use traditional models to arrive at an answer, but I'm using AI models to challenge that answer. While AI may not allow me to provide explainability, it can challenge my performance of the traditional models. As soon as I see a different output from AI versus a traditional model where I can explain it better, now I'm going and fine-tuning my traditional model. So that's how we are using it. The, right. I'm giving you an opposite answer of what you asked for, but <laughs> this is the positive way of using that. Another question here. We've got lots of uh, questions. One is, um, do you actually have in-house quantum computing or AI capabilities, or are you renting them, and how do you see ownership of them as you know, a potential success or, or not in the future? Yeah, it's uh, a great question. Um, I've, I've learned and, and matured as, as my career progressed that 
not everything has to be invented here. Yeah. Um, we, are, we are renting the quantum uh, computing from Microsoft. So there is IBM, there is Microsoft, there is Honeywell, and there are others that are doing it. it we have a dedicated space on Microsoft Cloud for quantum computing. I'm also renting quantum mental capacity from Microsoft as well as from other startups. So what we do is we identify real use cases for the bank and we work with Microsoft and give them the opportunity to work on a real world financial services problem which they may not have access to that allow them to tune their quantum computing to perform better while we have the ability to access their quantum research scientists. But we started off by creating the quantum engineering within our organization. So we have three quantum scientists that work within the technology organization that do everything within our own labs before we partner with these large tech companies as well as startups so we can move fast but also have the power of the big companies behind us. Another question from the audience, is quantum computing too far away? I think what they mean is kind of that wider adoption of quantum computing too far away. Um, the broader adoption of quantum computing is far away, but depends on what industries you're trying to use it for. Mm -hmm. You know, supply chain would be a classic application of quantum computing to identify the, the last mile problem of quantum computing is yet to be solved. You know, there is global supply chains that, that, that have quantum computing applied, but when the product comes into the US and how it gets distributed is still a problem. You know, lack of, truck, lack of trucks, lack of storage space, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, I understand this because I used to, to lead the quantum computing team at Honeywell um, and work very closely with them. So I understand how it's applied in the manufacturing space. In the fintech space, the margin of error that a quantum computer produces is still not palatable for broad, you know, broadly available customer-facing solutions. One final question, which is, you know, what about talent and kind of where that, and I wanted to touch on it because we've certainly had a lot of uh, layoffs when it comes to big tech firms. Um, and how do you, or where is, you know, kind of ally in terms of where you are with some of the talent here and, and how you think about talent as you look to onboard, you know, people that can help with both quantum computing and AI capabilities? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you hear the, the news around technology layoffs from big tech companies. Talent competition is real. It's very difficult to hire retain and attract top talent. But we have been very lucky. Uh, we've been very lucky in terms of being a leading digital organization that provides the right set of challenges for the talent that are coming in. As, as, an, as an example, we hired over 1,100 engineers in the last 16 months, 85% of them hands-on keyboard software engineers. And our attrition rate is way below what the industry is. Um, so I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful for the platform that the company provides. I'm thankful for the customer problems that these people are solving day in and day out. And I'm also thankful for the slate of candidates that we get to see today because of all the news that you talked about that want to be part of something that is growing, that is something that is stable, 
and that provides them um, job satisfaction. Well, Satish, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you to the audience for your questions. Appreciate it. Aline, thank you. Thank you very much.